Last night I began to speak a bit about uh, what we're doing in the practice in terms of uh, what what we can understand uh, by the word insight, what that understanding of insight and insight meditation, what that's pointing to. So I'm hoping tonight's talk will uh, follow along on that theme. And sometimes talks like this can seem to have a lot of information in them. <laughs> and I would just want to caution um, caution you to just listen with an open ear and uh, not worry about necessarily having it all stick in there or having to remember anything necessarily. Just sit quietly, let it in, and trust that if there's something useful there, it will go in and be there when needed. Sometimes I give a, a talk like this somewhat later in the retreat, but I, I think it follows on well from last night. So we'll see how it goes here. Often the spiritual life or a spiritual journey is spoken about in that way. A spiritual practice, a meditation practice, is often spoken about in terms of a journey. The word path is used, walking a path. And this is not just true in, in the Buddhist tradition. In many great traditions, we speak, speak in terms of a spiritual journey or a path of awakening. Some words to this effect, this idea of, of walking a path, <clears throat> of being on a journey. In one place in the text, the Buddha spoke in this way. This is an excerpt from a longer teaching, but he, he said, he declared that he was the knower of the path, the seer of the path, and the guide along the path. So I was speaking in these terms of, of uh, this process uh, as, as a journey, as a path, walking a path. And it's sometimes this journey is described as a journey to one's true home, a journey home. The realization that the Buddha was speaking about is sometimes uh, spoken of as realizing, uh, arriving at one's true home. These kinds of words sometimes used. And if we think about what it might be like to reach a real home, a good home, a true home, there might be connotations that this is a place of, of some ease and rest, a place of safety, where the body, the mind, and the heart, where we can really relax. You know, we open the door, we walk in, uh, sigh of relief. That's what home often has that kind of feeling there, those connotations there. So if we use this metaphor of a journey for the spiritual life, for the meditation practice, then and see ourselves then as travelers on a journey of some kind, a journey home, then we see ourselves walking this path towards this destination of, of a kind of really deep, the deepest possible freedom or ease, relaxation, however you want to, uh, whatever kinds of words you might apply to that quality of real deep rest, deep ease, deep peace. There. So if we're setting out on a journey and we want to reach this destination, we want to reach our true home, there's two things that we have to do then. We have to actually start walking. We have to set out. We can't just read about it and look at maps and plan the route and think about going and 
Yeah, sounds like a good idea, and it's read all the descriptions. It's like reading the menu of a restaurant over and over. You'll never know what, let's say you read, a, you read about mangoes and sticky rice dessert you get a lot in Thailand, and someone tells you about it. But unless you go in and actually taste it, you don't have any idea. You have to actually set out. You have to go there. And you have to set out in the right direction. Right? If we set out in the wrong direction, if we're not heading in the right way, we might get lost. Lost in the woods. Where there could be a lot of difficulties, really even dangers along the way if we're going the wrong way. So we need to go in the right direction. So luckily, in this case, with the Buddha as the source of these teachings, he gave us some good directions. A lot of them. Quite elaborate in a lot of different ways. Spoke about this journey in a lot of different ways. That was his genius, really. Depending on his audience, the timing of things, who was listening, what they were ripe for, which he had this ability to really see and feel. He could speak in the way that seemed to be just just the thing that that person or group needed to hear. And so often, you know, the Buddha gives a discourse, everybody's enlightened. Well, this is a nice story, maybe somewhat mythological. But I've had experiences with really great masters where I could see that possibility. So I'd, I'd be careful of dismissing that only as kind of a, a nice story to make the Buddha sound like, you know, really cool, like a great teacher. And so he offered us some really great teachings. And one place that we find this is in the core teaching of the Buddha, which is there in all, all of the Buddhist traditions. The core, the heart of things, is, is really distill it all down to what are the teachings on the Four Noble Truths, what are called the Four Noble Truths. This is the heart of, of his teaching. And just very briefly, he, in this he taught about suffering, dukkha, on different levels, that this is a this is a truth, that this exists. Not life is suffering, but there is suffering in life. There is stress, struggle, whatever you, all the words that one might use to point to that. That it's not always just easy sailing, right? It's a bumpy ride. He pointed to the cause of that as clinging, grasping in the mind, the cessation of it. And then the fourth noble truth was, is the Eightfold Noble Path, the path leading to the cessation of suffering. Now, this is the, the, the heart of the Buddha's teaching. And I'm, I'm not going to give a talk tonight on uh, the Four Noble Truths, but in a way I am. <laughs> I am and I'm not. <clears throat> I'm actually going to use the teachings of the Eightfold Path as a... Uh, as a framework for understanding, hopefully pointing to an understanding, a bit of one way of looking at how our practice actually unfolds in, in meditation, in this spiritual path, in this along this journey. So this teaching of the Eightfold Noble Path, the Fourth Noble Truth, offers us a set of practices that allow us to understand the nature of suffering, the First Noble Truth, its cause, the Second Noble Truth, allow us to abandon that cause 
and through this to realize the possibility of freedom, of liberation of mind and heart. So it's important when we hear a teaching like this to remember that that this uh, this teaching of the Eightfold Path, it's not just some kind of Buddhist philosophical or theoretical understanding or or just another list that we're supposed to, if we're good Buddhists, we will have memorized it at some point. You know, there's the, the three refuges and the four noble truths and the five spiritual faculties and the five precepts and the six whatever, I can't think of them, but the seven factors of awakening and the eightfold noble path. And, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff in Buddhism. It's rich and thick with it. So don't worry. You don't, not, I'm not expecting anyone to memorize this may at some point have some meaning where where we have more of a relationship to it. But it's not just some theoretical understanding, but it actually, we can use it and see it as a framework for seeing what we're actually doing in the practice. And I'm hoping that that will be uh, what comes across in this talk tonight. It's also important to, to uh, bear in mind that it's not a linear progression from number one to number eight. You know, first this, then this, then this. A more useful way to see this teaching is um, as interwoven strands of a cable. Like if you have a big cable, like these giant cables that support bridges and things, they're woven of many, many strands. And each one supports the other one, and that's where the strength of it comes. So it's much more an interweaving, not a linear progression. So I'll touch briefly on these factors uh, because you could give more than one talk just on each one of them. There are vast teachings. There's one sutta where the Buddha speaks about the first path factor, right view, in 16 different ways of, of the way we might hold that. So this will be a, a simple way of examining these. It's hopefully actually useful. So the Eightfold Path is usually broken down into three kind of sections or groups. The first one, in the way that it's usually, it's, it's used in different ways. But the first of these is called the wisdom group, usually. It has two factors. I'll say the Pali words, because sometimes it's nice to hear those. Uh, samaditi, right view, or wise or right view. Emma sankapa, right intention, or sometimes it's translated as right thought. And these factors address kind of an orientation of mind or heart, you could say. And they can lead us to an, an interesting and powerful shift in our perspective. So when the Buddha said, I, I may have used this quotation last night, I can't remember. The Buddha said, now and before I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. This is actually a very radical statement. And it goes directly to one aspect of what we might call right or wise view. If there is this understanding or acknowledgement that there is struggle, stress, suffering, bumpiness, dis-ease in our lives, in the world, and understand, as I was speaking uh, to last night, that, that, the, the, that suffering or non-suffering that both of those result from that they arise in the mind in terms of our relationship to our experience, to life. That, that that's where that happens. 
that stress and struggle. Then we can begin to relate to our experience not so much in terms of good and bad and right and wrong, what I like, what I don't like, what I want, what I don't want, and all the usual ways that we relate to everything that comes at us in life. I like this, I don't like that, I want this, I don't want that, this is good, this is bad. Rather than relating to it only in that way, we start to see things in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering and when it is not there. What causes it, what leads to freedom from it, what leads to abandoning it. We can start to look at life in that way. And this is a very uh, fundamental and essential aspect of what we might call right view. It's a reorientation of how we look at things. And, and then if we include the understanding that this stress and struggle are mind-caused, in a sense, arise in the mind, in relationship, then this leads to the second of these first two path factors, wise or right intention. And we can see intention as uh, the, the uh, kind of factor, mental factor, that links our understanding, our, our perspective, cognitive kind of perspective, with actions that we might actually take leads us to actually do something. So in this case, the intention born of this understanding leads us to engage with the practice, set out on the journey, you could say. Take the first steps along this path. And so then these two, of a wise or right view and then wise or right intention, they lead us then to the next group of this Eightfold Path, which is uh, the, which are the teachings on conduct, sila, sila section, the uh, section on ethical conduct, and basically this is as I've been talking, as I spoke about uh, some last night, and in the opening talk in uh, discussing the taking of the refuges and precepts, this is an orientation around non-harming, around creating harmony not harming ourselves, not harming others in the world. And in terms of the Eightfold Noble Path, there are three uh, parts to this. So there are the two wisdom parts of uh, view, right view, wise view, and intention. In this uh, sila, or conduct, ethical conduct section, there are three parts there of right speech, samawacha, right action, samakamanta, and right livelihood, sama ajiva. Wise or right, you could use either word there. And so this is about creating harmony in our lives, in the world, not intentionally adding to the suffering in the world, whether through our speech, our actions, or the way that we make a living, how we earn the work that we do in the world. And so this commitment then, this engagement with this, commitment to uh, doing our best to live a life of non-harming, that then leads to the third section of this teaching of the Eightfold Path, which is called the concentration or the samadhi group. And there are three parts to this. Right effort, samavayama. Right mindfulness, samasati. And right concentration, samasamadhi. So these are the, uh, this is the, 
area of the actual mind development meditation practice, you could say. And this is, um, there's an, an interesting interdependent relationship uh, with these these three that uh, I found this very nice simile in, in one of the commentaries that I'll share with you that I, I think is very useful, actually. So this is a kind of illustration, like a story, of three children who go to a park to play. And while they're walking along, they see a tree with flowering tops up, up out of reach. And they decide they want to gather some of the flowers, but they're, they, even the tallest child can't get to them. So one of the friends bends down and, and offers her back to stand on. The tall child climbs up, but hesitates to reach because of a fear of falling. And so the third child comes over and, and offers uh, his shoulder to st- that the, the tall child can balance, stabilize, hold on to the shoulder. And then, um, so the tall child standing on the back of, of the second one and stabilizing on the shoulder of the third, then is able to reach up and gather the flowers. So in this illustration or simile, the tall child who's actually picking them represents concentration. And this has the function, as I spoke about this morning, of unifying the mind, stabilizing the mind, bringing a quality of non-distractedness to the mind. But concentration needs support in two ways. It needs the energy provided by right effort, which is like the the child who offers her back to support. And it needs the stability, stabilizing awareness of mindfulness, like the the child who offers his shoulder to help, help with the balance there. So concentration needs, these are woven, these factors are woven together. Concentration needs effort, Without effort, nothing happens. And it needs the stability of mindfulness, the necessary balance for the attention. So these factors working together result in a certain stability of mind. This quality of non-distractedness from the continuity of the attention allows the awareness to rest more firmly on whatever's arising on the object that's arising in the moment. And and when we're in this somewhat, doesn't have to be perfect, but a more non-distracted state, a more stable, steady, calm, tranquil state, with energy, so we're awake, then we actually can connect with life much more, uh, in a much deeper way. We actually can settle into it very deep connection with the flow of experience. We start to actually be able to have a more subtle relationship, more subtle seeing into the nature of things. So meditation, with the application of these meditative uh, factors, it steadies and calms the mind that's often so distracted, preoccupied with trying to fix and arrange our experience so it suits our desires and our ideas about how it should be caught up in judgment and reactivity and this seemingly endless sort of assessing of our experience in terms of what it means about me, what it says about me and who I am, all of the stuff that happens in this tendency of proliferation in the mind, different ways. 
the meditation practice tends to calm and tranquilize, settle that down. A lot of that falls away as these uh, concentration factors come into balance and strengthen and uh, support one another. And through this, as this starts to strengthen, and it doesn't have to get, it has to be there, but it's not like it has to be perfect. As this, as this begins to happen in our practice, we start to see how habits and patterns of reactivity in the mind function and how they, they drive our world in so many ways. And we see very directly what the Buddha was pointing to when he made a famous statement in the, in the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things. See, see this not just as as a, a, a state, we see directly, oh yeah, mind is the forerunner of things. Mind, these things arise in the mind, are mind caused. We can see how our inner world functions. We connect with life moment by moment, seeing very directly. And there's um, a natural process of relaxing, letting go, settling, releasing that happens as we start to see how things function, how suffering arises, how it's caused through this direct connection. It's as though the mind has a natural inclination towards ease and peace. It doesn't want to suffer, so there's this natural letting go that happens. So the process, the process by which understanding insight opens the heart and mind and leads to this quality of release, ease, is not the result of an act of will, a decision that we make, I'm going to not do certain things. It's not, it's an organic result of just clear seeing of what's really happening, what's really going in this mind and heart and body as we see how these patterns of reactivity how what are called the defilements of mind function how they lead to struggle suffering dis-ease in our lives then then it starts to fall away as a natural result of seeing that and we also start to see uh, how this uh, practice and path has the potential to lead us to the very deepest possible kind of peace, what the Buddha was always pointing to, what he was only ever interested in teaching about, liberation of mind and heart, or reaching one's real home, true home. And if you look in the teachings, he was always saying, this is what I, he's pointing at that, he said, if it weren't possible for you to understand to do this, I wouldn't ask you to even try. He didn't say, I'm special, I got it. You guys can do your best, but... No, he said, this is a possibility for any being to realize. So we might... So he was pointing to the peace and freedom of Nibbana. Nibbana in Sanskrit. This is the fruit of the Buddha's awakening. And we might well ask us, well, you know, that doesn't 
I can't, that doesn't have any meaning. What, what does this freedom mean? How would this manifest? What's this, what's this about? How does this, what does it mean? So uh, here's, it's described very simply in the text. And some, there's a lot of, there's a whole very beautiful book called uh, The Island, a whole discussion and, uh, of, uh, ways that the Buddha talked about the realization of Nibbana. There's one very uh, simple one line, one sentence. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hatred, the extinction of delusion, this is called Nibbana. In other words, if the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion are no longer arising in the mind and heart, no longer hold sway, they're not running the show, then one experiences the deepest possible happiness of this deep peace, this deep freedom. This word, Nibbana, is interesting. It, literally, it means something like to cease blowing or to go out. It's going outness in that literal translation of it. One teacher likened it to a fire that goes out when the fuel is exhausted or the fuel is taken away. Or does the fire doesn't go somewhere, it just goes out if the fuel isn't there anymore. And that's actually, I think, a useful kind of description in a way because if we're not feeding the fires of these roots of dis-ease, roots of suffering, the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, then they go out like a fire that has its fuel taken away or burns it up. If they're not being fed, they just fall away. There's a colloquial uh, use of this word I read somewhere that it also had a connotation, meaning of something cooling down. Like, let, well, let the rice nibbana and so we can eat it. Let it cool down. So it has this, this cooling out quality there. Here's another definition, very similar. If craving, anger, and delusion are given up, one aims neither at one's own ruin nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both, and so experiences no mental pain and grief. This is Nibbana, visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, and comprehensible to the wise. I mean, do we, ha- do we hold this even in any way as a kind of, as a possibility at all? You know, what would it be like if these energies didn't arise in the mind and the heart stream? If they weren't arising there. Or if they did arise, they had they were powerless. They had no sway over the mind and heart. And w- we can make the mistake of thinking that this this is some far off sounds nice beyond the scope of anything I could possibly imagine for myself or anything that I've ever experienced. But if we look at our experience, there are times when we may get a taste of this freedom that the Buddha was pointing at in this. There may be moments, they may be very brief moments, when these energies are not actually arising in the mind. Moments of just pure presence, when we're just there with the flow of things, 
There's the knowing of it, and there's no reactivity in the mind. Times of just a balance, an equanimity of mind and heart. <coughs> where it's just, everything's flowing along, and the mind is, is not reacting. There's no reactivity to that. Very peaceful state. It might not last, but we do taste that once in a while. We get a taste of this peace. The, the Thai forest uh, master Ajahn Buddhadasa, famous Thai master in the last century, he called this, he described this as momentary nibbana. A little, little bit of it for a moment. And we might be able to imagine this kind of state in the midst of our daily life while we're shopping or doing the dishes or the laundry or something. Visible in this very life, attractive, inviting. Now, I think we often have this idea that if we even have any idea of something we might call enlightenment, as some experience where you know we just kind of float away or dissolve into a, a mist of white light or something. Some, some idea that would be kind of cool sitting here and suddenly start glowing and float out through the ceiling or something. We, I think we, we have that idea about it. But, you know, the Buddha didn't float away or dissolve. Right? He lived a long time after his enlightenment. And he had to go on alms round every day to get... It's how those monks, even now today, I've lived this way. If you want to eat... You have to go and walk through the village, the town, whatever, with a bowl, stand in the street, can't ask for anything. If someone notices you and feels moved to put something in your bowl, you can accept it. Very strict rules about alms around. And you can't keep food over. It's something you have to do that every day. Conduct oneself in a way that's worthy of this. So you walk through the village, and, and you you get whatever you get. That's how you make your living. How you eat every day. Buddha had to do that. He did that every day. Maybe times when he was invited for a meal, but basically he had to live that kind of life because he was a monk in that tradition. He had a bad back. Stories of that in the teachings. He had to deal with people who were, he would sit people in situations he would really have preferred to have avoided if he could have. I'm sure. Difficult situations. He still had he had a life to live. You know, have our lives to live, and just like the Buddha, we're visited by all the changes that come, all the joys and sorrows. What are called the ten thousand joys and the ten thousand sorrows over the course of a life. And so this liberation that the Buddha is pointing to doesn't mean somehow escaping from life. I think a lot of the time we think, I'm, I'm going to get out of it, escape from it all. It's kind of crude, coarse <laughs> existence. Like some kind of heavenly realm of pure pleasure. It's in their realms of pure pleasure. It's always pleasant. But those are conditioned realms, and they don't lead to... Freedom. It's interesting. It's said that the human realm is the best place to practice. Because it's not so difficult that we're just crushed under the weight of intense suffering. And it's not so pleasant that there's no motivation of any kind to 
practice to, to look. So said that it's the right balance for us to practice. So we still have a life to lead, but but suffering in relation to those changes, to the flux of between joy and sorrow, pleasure, pain, all of that, the suffering in relation to that is is an entirely different question. And this insight that has the potential to open the heart and mind to liberating understanding can come at any time in relation to anything in experience. A Buddha taught liberation through non-clinging. And it doesn't matter what we don't cling to or when we don't cling. And the truth that he was pointing to is always there. We're swimming in this. We just don't see it most of the time. It's not that special times it comes into being so that we have the chance to to realize it, to see it, to open to it. The truth that he was pointing out, it's just an aspect of nature or of reality. It's not attaining some special state. One of the hardest things for us to really see in our practice is it's not about attaining some special rarefied state. Any state we might attain, doesn't. it's not going to last. So if our freedom is conditioned in that way, dependent on realizing some special state and somehow getting it to stay there, that's no real freedom. There's no real freedom in that. So I've been speaking a bit about what are called these uh, defilements of mind, these uh, the Pali word kilesa, these root causes of greed, hatred, and delusion, classically spoken about as the real, the causes, the roots of, of suffering that we might encounter. And these manifest on three levels. And again, I'm coming back to the Eightfold Path in a different way here. So they manifest in the first way, and they're called the level of transgression, which is where we're actually acting out, where these energies in the mind are are in charge and we're acting out of greed, craving, we're acting out of aversion or hatred or anger, or acting out of confusion. And we all, you know, we all know that there are times, <laughs> certainly I do, when that's what's running the show and all, and there's acting out from them. So these forces lead to actions of body and speech uh, in the world. Or, in, or manifesting in the mind, actions in the mind. Then there's a second level. Sometimes it's called the level, the obsessive level. I'm not sure why these terms were chosen. But that's when these energies are arising. They do arise. But there's enough presence of mind that they're not acted upon. We have enough presence to not act on them. And then there's the third level, which is the most subtle. It's called the latent tendencies, the level of latent tendencies. And that's where these energies are not arising in the moment, not currently manifesting, but their potential is there. And there's a a description. um, It's likened to mud that has settled to the bottom of a pond. It's not showing up, but it could get stirred up if the conditions come. So in this latent... Uh, manifestation, they're not they're not there. But you know, if the right button gets pushed, they'll come back up. 
I remember just as a quick example of, of this kind of latent thing. Of sometimes the mind gets quite purified, and these these uh, these energies are not manifesting. I remember one time I was practicing in a long period of time when I was living as a monk in Burma, and I was sitting in the morning for a long time before breakfast in the dark, you know, like from two or three hours, from two or three in the morning till the sun began to come up, and and I was in this very peaceful equanimous state but I had been told to leave the lights on on my porch because someone had been breaking into some of the little huts that we were living in so they said leave the porch light on at night so leaving the porch light on draws insects in insects draw geckos in that like to eat them geckos drop the pieces they don't the legs and the bits that they don't eat that brings in ants who like to feed on that. So I step out my door. There's this one kind of tiny little ant in Burma that um, they are unbelievable, and they they'll eat live prey. They're un- they're I've seen I've seen them strip down a you know a lizard to a skeleton in like minutes. It seems like so my porch is just covered with these ants. I step out the door. It's dark because the power has gone off, so the light's not on, and my feet are covered with. And they're, I'm a nice, tasty morsel to them. They're trying to kill and eat me. Very painful. And, you know, my equanimity, gone! You know, ah! you know this latent, they were latent there. They weren't eradicated. <laughs> right? So these, these uh, the, the kilesas, these defilements of greed, hatred, delusion, are addressed um, by the the factors of the path, the Eightfold Path, very directly. And here, the order of them it shifts. So it was the Wisdom Group, the uh, Sila Group, and the Concentration Group, in the way I first talked about it. Here it's the Sila comes first, the Samadhi second, and the Wisdom third. Sila Samadhi Panya, often spoken about the training in Sila Samadhi and Panya. And so this... Uh, transgressive level of acting out where where these energies are leading to actions in the world are addressed by the uh, our conduct, our commitment to the precepts, for example, to our commitment to our ethical conduct of sila. Right speech, right action, right livelihood. So we engage there, this uh, commitment to non-harming. And this is the foundation for the meditation. Then. If we're acting out these difficult energies, actually acting them out, we're not going to be able to work and look at and engage with the mind states that lead to that. We're past that, right? So we engage with our behavior, with uh, uh, our commitment to non-harming, sila in this way, and that leads us to meet these uh, these defilements of mind, these kilesas, on this level of the second level of what's called the obsessive level, where they're arising in the mind stream, but we're 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 not acting them out, and this is a lot of where we're working in our meditation practice. This level of uh, mental cultivation, these path factors of effort, mindfulness, concentration that I've spoken about, and these allow us to meet these difficult energies as they're arising, and so we sit with anger and frustration with boredom, with intense desire, with dullness, sleepiness, confusion. 
and we meet them as they arise, just as they are. We get to know them. We don't have to act on them. We don't turn away from them, try to avoid them, or try to manipulate our experience so that we don't have to feel them. And this is a lot of what's happening in our practice, isn't it? These things arising. We're feeling them very directly in the mind and in the heart. Sometimes when we first come to practice, this doesn't seem like a good idea. Be a, a fear that, well, if I just sit with anger or fear, won't it? It'll just get stronger. It'll just take over. I need to get away from it or push it away. Strong conditioning around this to avoid these things. The fear that they'll take us over somehow, overwhelm us. But we actually start to see in our practice that if we do sit with them, let them arise and pass away as is their nature, that they start to unbind and release and relax and let go by themselves. And their grip on our mind and heart starts to loosen it naturally. It might take some time. It's not, not a quick process, but it does start to happen. So there's a, stir- there's a kind of stability and purity of mind that, that comes from uh, applying effort, concentration, mindfulness with, uh, with the samadhi factors, the meditation practice. And concentration can reach a, a certain strength, whether with a single object or, or momentary concentration, as I described this morning, where there's no space, the continuity of mindfulness can be so... Uh, so fine, continuous, mindfulness so continuous that there's no space for these uh, difficult energies to arise. They can't find their way in there. There's no room for them. It's called this seclusion of mind. Sometimes it's called the bliss of seclusion. It can be very, very sweet at times. These difficult energies are not arising. It can be peaceful, restful, healing place in our practice. But it's a temporary conditioned state. It doesn't last. Arises due to conditions. Will pass away when those conditions change. It's not a problem or a sign of failure when that happens. It's a natural part of the process. And so concentration can hold these things at bay. They're set aside, is how it's described often. But given the right conditions, they, they come back rise because of this latent existence, the latent uh, way that they are, they're latent, dormant, right conditions, they come back. So concentration can suppress them, keep them at bay, but it doesn't in and of itself have the power to eradicate or uproot them. This is um, addressed by the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. Wisdom, it's wisdom that insight and wisdom that have the potential to uproot these energies. And this is not a wisdom of of thought or intellect, even though intellect and thought are are useful and play an important role in our practice at times. But it's an intuitive kind of seeing, which I've been speaking about quite a lot. A direct intuition. And it arises organically, naturally, as through the 
uh, our willingness to meet the moment just as it is, meet our experience, our life as it is. So I've been speaking about these root causes of greed, hatred, and delusion, of uh, the roots of suffering, of dis-ease. But there's a, a, an ignorance, a kind of uh, clouding of the mind that, that underlies these. And um, this is addressed by this wisdom of insight. This deep clouding of the mind manifests in three ways that I started speaking about last night, so I'm coming back to that. It, it manifests in that we take that which is impermanent to be permanent. We take that which is incapable of ever serving as a source of lasting happiness to be capable of doing so. And it takes uh, that which is not a self to be a self. So the, the meditation practice with the samadhi factors of effort, mindfulness, concentration, they lead us to this level of insight into these uh, uh, universal common characteristics of everything, anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanent, unreliable, coreless, uncontrollable nature of, of things. And it's that understanding that has the potential to uproot these difficult defilements of mind energies. And so if we pay attention to our experience in the body, in the mind, we'll see that it's in a state of constant change and flux, right? Everything that arises is subject to change and subject to passing away. This is this uh, teaching on impermanence, anicca. There's nothing that arises. Everything that arises is subject to change. And if we pay attention, we see that things are changing very quickly, actually. Nothing lasts very long at all in the flow of our experience. And so there's nothing in that flow of change that we can hold on to to be the source of our lasting happiness. So no experience, no matter how pleasant, beautiful, sublime, will last and be reliable as the thing that makes us makes it okay, makes our life all right, right? It's it's not that it isn't that there aren't those beautiful, sublime, blissful kinds of experiences, but they don't last. So it's that unreliability there, that liability to change. This truth of dukkha. So this, because of their impermanence, they can't be, they're not reliable as a source of lasting happiness because they don't last. And then we start to see into the most fundamental misunderstanding of this deep delusion, which takes that which is not a self to be a self. This is the most radical of the Buddha's uh, teachings and understandings, maybe the potentially most liberating of the understandings that he spoke about. We see that what we take to be a self is just a natural process of cause and effect playing out over and over, conditions unfolding according to natural law, and that it's happening by itself and there's no one behind it who's in charge or controlling it. We see that that the process is happening by itself and that it is identification with some aspect of it, holding on to, clinging to, 
some aspect of this, grasping at it, that gives substance to this feeling I am. We see that what we call self is a feeling that arises out of our relationship to this flow of experience. Now this is subtle. We have to see things on a couple levels here. I may have to speak about this. I'm running out of time. I'll try to wrap this up. Because I'm sitting here and you're sitting here and there's a certain reality on the relative level of that. So it's not a denial of self on that level. But it's seeing what really is going on there is this process of causes and conditions unfolding. And that ultimately it's it's not amenable to our will. If it was, we could just say, let it always be how I want it to be. If, it, if, if this... If life were controllable in that way, certainly would be no reason to come on retreat, subject ourselves to this nonsense, this difficult meeting of our life, <laughs> not easy. And sometimes we think, well, this experience of not-self, you know, it's kind of scary. What does it mean? I'll disappear, I'll go away, or something like that. We can think of it in that. But actually we find when we start to touch into this at moments, it's actually a great relief. It's like setting down a burden we didn't realize we were carrying around. There was an article I read where uh, Jack Cornfield, a teacher in California, you may have heard of, well-known author, teacher. Apparently at some point he was in Sri Lanka and he asked this meditation master there to very quickly simply teach him the essence of Buddhism. Apparently this was an old monk Apparently he just laughed and said three times, no self, no problem. No self, no problem. No self, no problem. That was his, the essence of it. So I'll wrap this up now. But if you think about it, the practices that we're doing right here now on this retreat, what I'm trying to guide us into, they're the... They're the Pretty, they're the same practices that Buddha and his disciples were doing. You know, they were just like them. We are engaged in an exploration of our bodies and minds, hearts, if you will. We're walking the same path. It's not a different one. We live in a world of change and unpredictability, the same they did too. We have good days, bad days, joys and sorrows, difficulties, triumphs. It's the same. Life is like that. Nothing changed. There's this timeless quality there to these teachings and the understandings that are being pointed to. So the normal truth of suffering, its cause, its release, the path leading to that freedom is the same. This impermanent, unreliable, coreless nature of things, that's just the nature of things. This unfolding of natural processes, that just continues. So there is this timeless quality to the Dhamma. It's there to be realized at any point. So I'm going to end with a few poems. And we'll run over a little bit tonight. and That's the way it's going. But I find these poems very inspiring. I hope they may be to you. These are some uh, translations from a collection called the Terigata. Uh, Teri means uh, female elder. Tera means male elder. This tradition is Theravada, way of the elders. So Terigata means uh, verse or poem, phrase, verse. 
So these are poems of the female elders, of the uh, nuns who were uh, around, ordained by practicing at the time of the Buddha. So I'm going to read two or three of these. So the first one is by a nun named Patachara. And I love these poems because they're so uh, simple and from the heart and um, and in some of them, like uh, at least the first couple here, they they have kind of this interesting description of the moment of waking up. It's really great. So anyway, this is a poem by Patachara who had a very interesting story, very difficult life parallel to uh, uh, Deepama's life, if you've ever heard of, read the story of Deepama, losing her whole family in terrible, tragic circumstances. This is her enlightenment poem. When they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth, when they care for their wives and children, young Brahmins find riches. But I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher. I'm not lazy or proud. Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell. I checked the bed and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. I mean, it's like one of us turning out the light, going to bed. That's the moment of realization, not I was sitting in some deep blissful state and began to float into the air. And No, I was putting out the lights and my mind was free in that moment. The second poem is by Mita Kali. She was a wandering ascetic. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then, as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teaching has been done. So watching the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, that's what we're doing. She stood up. That was that moment of just the standing up. So I'll end with a a more recent, not exactly an enlightenment poem, but has that same feel. And this is by a nun in Thailand who uh, was alive in the past century, died in the 1970s, 1980s. So this is a recent one. Sometimes it seems like all this stuff happened a long time ago. This is a nun in Thailand who was regarded uh, as being fully enlightened. This is what she wrote, or spoke. 
Body, mind, and essence are all distinct and separate realities. Absolutely everything is known, earth, water, fire, and wind, body, feeling, memory, thought, and consciousness, sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions, anger, greed, and delusion. All are known. Sound like a familiar list? Kind of everything that comes up over the course of a day. All are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states, but no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. In a perfectly still crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily and fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. And the world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight. And we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. Let's take just a moment, keep sitting quietly, let these words drift away just for a few seconds. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.